This is the Sunday Times Politics Weekly, where every week we unpack the big political stories. I'm Mike Siluma, and thanks for joining us. Despite the supposed end of apartheid 28 years ago, racism continues to cause conflict in South African society. Only this week, a white student was suspended from Stellenbosch University for urinating on the belongings of a black fellow student. At the same institution, a student was verbally abused for asking for an Indian song at a dance. In this episode of The Politics Weekly, we ask what sustains racism in our society and how can we fight it more effectively? Uh, joining us now is Andre Gaum from the Human Rights Commission, uh, who is a commissioner there. And then after him, uh, we will hear the views of Isabius Mekaiser, who is a social analyst, broadcaster and author of the book Run Racist Run. We'll also be joined by Dr. Figile Villagazi, who's a lecturer in public policy and political science at the University of Guazulu Natal. With immediate effect. When people saw us, and I quote, in two years' time, Eskim's problems will be a thing of the past. People won't even remember load shedding. Unquote. They put saliva on the paper. I'm in charge. That's why these fools are running around here. I'm in charge. And then they share that zone. Point of order, Chaperson. Order, Chaperson. Point of order, ruling party by point of order. Must step aside within 30 days. No, I'm not going to apologize. He has no brains whatsoever. The AFP president was sabotaged again yesterday. Well, sabotage, that can be This is not a shit. Hey, welcome to the podcast, uh, Andre. Thank you very much. Appreciate it very much. The, the the Human Rights Commission has been called upon to deal with countless incidents of racism uh, in recent times. Uh, what trends are you seeing as a, as a commission? You know, uh, incidents where you've been called upon to come and assist or resolve a, a race-related uh, conflict? Yes, as you indicate, there have been countless reported incidents of racism in South Africa. The Stellenbosch incident is one of many, and this is very concerning. Uh, at institutions of learning, both universities and schools, we continue to witness allegations of unfair discrimination on various grounds, including race, and the marginal, uh, what we call the marginalization of the other. Uh, be it learners whose hair is different, learners who do not conform with set rules around school uniform, or discrimination aimed against the LGBTI and GNC community that is rife in South Africa, the rates for incident we had at the University of the Free State, we also had uh, race-related complaints concer concerning Brockenfell High School. So in 2020-2021, as reflected in our Trends Analysis Report that was published recent, recently, the Commission received over 800 equality and 400 dignity-related complaints, including complaints from schools in Pumalanga, uh, that was the Bank uh, Technical High School, Gauteng, the Cornwall High School, Wurskool Jan Verjoen and Randfontein High School, all in Gauteng and in the Western Cape, the Brockenfell High School incident I uh, mentioned about the matric ball. This apart from the much publicized Schweizer-Rieneke incident as well. This trend is indeed seriously concerning and warrant a very concerted response from South Africans as a whole and from all the various institutions. 
Uh, so we have witnessed that the equality complaints that we receive constitute the highest number of complaints received by the Commission annually. And this has been the trend for the past few years. Of these complaints, most are based on race and most relates uh, to hate speech. So, sorry, Andre, they, 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 where, where, how do we uh, describe equality complaints? What, 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 what do they entail? And how are they separate from, from the other category? Yeah, they would uh, mostly uh, be complaints of unfair discrimination based on a prohibited ground in our Bill of Rights in Section 9, which would be uh, matters of race, sexual orientation, gender, and so forth, all the prohibited grounds. All these complaints would be hate speech complaints. Uh, as we know, our constitution protects freedom of expression, but it does not protect hate speech that is excluded from constitutional protection. So, uh, yes, those would relate to, to hate speech, which is being dealt with in terms of our Equality Act. I know that you, you uh, just, 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 just as talking about uh, hate speech uh, issues, that uh, you are party to the, to the court case uh, that, that's happening right now in, in relation to the old South African flag. Some people call it the apartheid flag. Uh, you, what, you, just very briefly, what, what is your interest in that and what, what, what are your views? Yes, we are uh, an amicus curiae, a friend of the court, together with the Nelson Mandela Foundation that actually brought the original uh, application. Yes, and, and our view in that regard is that the gratuitous display of the flag, it is not about the um, use of the flag for academic purposes, for example, um, for scientific purposes uh, or so, but the gratuitous display of the flag, so for, if it's displayed for no reason, that that amounts to hate speech. And we say so, you know, in view of the uh, atrocities that has happened in the past under the banner of the flag. That is to sum it up. Mm, mm. Let, let's go back to the educational institutions. You know, you, you, you mentioned schools, you mentioned universities, we, which seem to be uh, to have become like uh, a, a frequent site. Of, uh, of of conflict, you know, of of of, you know, of race related uh, conflict. Shouldn't these places be like the the like places of enlightened thinking, or the imparting at least of of enlightened thinking? You know, if 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 the people who go there are not uh, progressive in their outlook. Yes, no, absolutely, I agree with you. These should be institutions of enlightened thinking, and I think you know, in general. Uh, they are indeed, and sometimes it does happen, unfortunately, that there are individuals who act in a particular manner which is discriminatory and so on. I don't think one can draw the immediate conclusion uh, at all that that higher education institution as such is against transformation or is uh, racist or whatever the, the case may be, but more initiatives are indeed required. So the commission held national hearings on the transformation at public universities in 2014. And in part, the commission was concerned at the time of the following one, a lack of a uniform understanding of, of what transformation means. Two, a lack of institutional will to transform university cultures. Three, poor integration of the transformation project at all levels of institutional life and for the persisting disparities between racial groups inherited from the apartheid past 
which showed themselves at university campuses. So we feared that these were some of the triggers behind reported and unreported incidents of racism on campuses. And to the, that effect, we recommended one, uh, that the government ought to spearhead transformation initiatives at institutions of higher learning. Two, that the government ought to use its powers to hold universities who fail to transform to account. And three, that universities ought to prioritize transformation goals and strategies that would reflect the broader values of society and that there should be a transformation charter for universities. Uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, not that much, I think, has happened from government side in this regard, including in the development of a transformation charter. But uh, there are also further positive developments, specifically pertaining to schools as well as universities, in which the South African Human Rights Commission is very directly involved. The one was that new textbooks have been written for the life orientation uh, learning area for grades four until grade 12. Uh, and these textbooks will be uh, launched relatively soon, we understand. Uh, it's for us very important that, that they are made compulsory in all schools and that provincial departments of education wouldn't have a choice in that regard. Uh, but apart from that, we are right now working with the Department of Basic Education to develop what we call a diversity and sensitivity program for all learners in schools. Uh, and we, we hope that that in initiative would make a huge difference. Similarly, with regard to universities, we are working towards the development of a human rights compliant, um, uh, a human rights compliant online course uh, for uh, all university students so that uh, they need to complete that and to make that compulsory as well is our actual eventual aim. And we are aware that the steering committee of the vice chancellors of University South Africa are uh, busy developing a diversity and sensitivity program for all students. They've reached out to us and we'll meet them soon and work with them towards the development of a human rights compliant sensitivity and diversity program. So we think that, you know, we should act proactively and uh, these initiatives are proactive initiatives that will really work towards the creation of a culture of human rights at our schools and our higher education institutions. Here, here's the, 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 the other thing, uh, Andre, that, that as we are, you know, developing, you know, those strategies, you know, to sensitize people, to educate people, to help people understand, you know, issues around race and racism, uh, th th there's a view that South Africa, you know, for a, for, for a country that has uh, been traumatized so much by the question of race, uh, that 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 we we're very lenient in terms of uh, dealing uh, with 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 transgressions. Yes, uh, I think. Yes. In, in in other words, you know, if if someone if someone uh, does something wrong, maybe they they offend someone, they get they they are found guilty, and and they have money, then they they pay a fine, and then they walk away. You know, uh, you know, it's like no skin, you know, no skin off their nose. You know, uh, or they are they are sentenced to do community service, etc. You know, that kind of thing. Some people feel that that's very lenient. Th those kinds of punishments. 
Yes, I think it's also for that reason that we uh, that uh, the parliament is uh, at this very point in time uh, dealing with the what is called the hate speech and hate crimes uh, act to make sure that uh, you know the uh, these transgressions are dealt with uh, in a more serious manner uh, at the moment. Uh, but uh, there is obviously the um, Equality Act. And when someone, for example, would make him or herself guilty of uh, unfair discrimination or of hate speech, uh, you know, there are very specific sanctions outlined in, in that act that goes beyond merely apologizing and, and goes beyond even the payment of certain damages, but include other issues as you've referred to, like uh, community serv service, diversity and sensitivity training, etc. So um, I think that uh, the uh, mechanisms are there to hold people accountable. Uh, but at the same time, we should also remember that it should still be all part of an educational process to uh, educate people uh, to assist them in being more, more tolerant and uh, less prejudicial to, towards others. It remains that that project of building a culture of human rights remains a very important process. And that is largely done through education. And that's also why the South African Human Rights Commission is specifically focusing there where we think the, the biggest difference uh, can indeed be made, and that is among young people, both at school, but also at the tertiary education level. Mm. And and the it, it just in terms of you know I I, I see that in you know di obviously different countries with different histories you know uh, would have uh, you know very you know divergent uh, or different approaches. Um, in 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 internationally, you what what how. You know, uh, countries. Uh, is is there a, a a a country we can look at and say that country is like uh, a model in how it deals with issues of racism? Uh, you, you, not, not really. What I'm aware of, a comparative study is is important, and uh, we also uh, should perhaps do more in terms of comparative analysis. But um, you know, uh, to a, to a large extent, I think we remain one of the most diverse countries in the world and maybe one of the best examples of um, a, a people that is continuously struggling with these issues and continuing to try and um, push the envelope and, and make progress in this regard. You see the unfortunate trend in countries such as Germany, Poland and um, Austria that there's actually a rise there in New Nazism, for example, especially because of the migration apparently of um, of from Arabic countries and so on, uh, and you see uh, worldwide, also in the United States, uh, maybe a rise in uh, different forms of nationalism. So um, you know, in in that sense, I think we might remain one of the good examples for the world. To really, uh, because we're really struggling with these issues and then trying to find uh, solutions. Uh, and that is what we continue to do. 
Okay. Uh, Andrew Gum, I would like to thank you very much uh, for your time uh, on the podcast to talk about this very important uh, issue in our society. Uh, Andrew Gum, of course, is a commissioner at the Human Rights Commission. Next, we're talking to Eusebius Mekaiser, who's a social analyst, broadcaster, and author of the book Run Racist run, as well, of course, as uh, Dr. Figile Vilagazi, who's a lecturer in public policy and political science at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Shall I start with you, Isabias? But it, it does often feel like we're marking time as a country, you know, uh, in relation to the question of racism. What What is keeping it alive in South Africa, would you say? Hi, Mike, and thanks so much for having me on this podcast. I'm a keen follower of it and of your work. I think it has been kept alive by many factors that contribute. There isn't only one factor, and I will name a couple of them. I'll pause and we can engage some of it. One is that when we try to wipe the slate clean, especially with the TRC, we made a mistake. We got insufficient truth and hardly any justice, and we left ourselves with the psychopolitical burden of pretending that all is well when many racists are still in power economically, even if not politically, and walk around with racist attitudes and beliefs in their hearts that we have never dealt with institutionally in our interpersonal relationships and otherwise. The other factor is economic. You will never deal with racism until you deal with economic apartheid. Obviously, I can be wealthy and black and still experience anti-black racism. So dealing with the economic injustices isn't a silver bullet. But for as long as millions of black people live impoverished lives, undignified lives, it makes it even harder to see yourself as fully human and to assert your humanity in the face of white supremacy. Uh, Dr. Vilagazi, uh, Eusebius says uh, we, we just specifically that we may have made a mistake in our approach uh, in relation to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Would you agree with that? Thank you so much, uh, Mike. I fully agree with you, Eusebius. I think there's a couple of mistakes that we did, right? One is, is one that Eusebius is speaking about on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission process. But I also want to point out that it actually started earlier during CODESA negotiations, um, you know, with the sunset clause conversations. And I was saying the other day that the sunset clause has been one of our deepest mistakes in terms of addressing questions of race, uh, race and racial discrimination, because already the negotiations were set up in such a manner that you are not going to be able to shake anything that is racist in South Africa. The commitment of CODESA, you know, outside after the negotiations was very, very clear that whiteness will never be shaken in South Africa. Whiteness will never be shifted in, you know, in the manner that it was during the apartheid regime. So by the time I even moved into the 1994 elections, um, white supremacy was comfortable in the nation and nothing was shaken as, as a result, even as you proceeded to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was clear that that was just a performance, but it was not necessarily deepening the shifting of racial um, 
discrimination in the country, which is why we still see the kinds of incidences like we see in Stellenbosch, where that perpetrator can 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 confidently, with audacity, says that this is what white boys do, you know, and and students are actually saying they without that he will even be held accountable. He may even run away with this because institutionally the psyche of the nation as well and the psyche of our institutions is still deeply embedded in the comfort of whiteness, in the comfort of racism, which is something that we need to undo as a nation. You say, yes, Dr. Dr. Villagazi is is referring to to whiteness, the power of whiteness and the problem of of whiteness. Now, I know that you're very uh, keen and and very, you know, uh, steeped in, in matters constitutional and legal. Now, another person might say, look, we have got a constitution, we have got a bill of rights, etc. How is it that we then have a problem of whiteness? It's an excellent question. And part of the answer is that there's a limit to what the law can do to transform the material conditions of society. The constitution that we adopted in 96, Mike, is a vision for a country we wish should come into existence in the future. The hard work that Dr. Velakazi is rightly pointing out is then to reduce the gap between vision and reality. We haven't reduced that gap much. And so although the constitution imagines a South Africa that is non-racial, which is a lower bar, by the way, than anti-racist, although it imagines a society in which dignity and equality and freedom are the foundational, inviolable values and rights, dignity so preeminent it cannot even be limited under a state of emergency, in the real world, you have black people, even under a black-led government, being treated with indignity, hence, for example, Marakana, hence soldiers going into the yards of South Africans in shacks, killing them, hence Abashlali being treated not as a bona fide social movement, but as an enemy of the state. And so the truth of the matter is that the law will always be at best useful, but in reality an inadequate tool with which to deal with systemic racism, economic racism, institutional racism, and let's call it casual everyday racism. We need to tackle these socially and economically, ethically, politically, and ask ourselves, what am I doing at Arena Holdings to reduce workplace racism? What am I doing at UKZN to make it a safer space so that more black women academics like me can come into the space? Those questions can't be answered with the law. And so even arresting Tiens at Stellenbosch might satisfy us in the moment. Declaring him Mampara of the week might satisfy us in the moment. But the bigger questions have got to be dealt with with a complex set of social and economic and ethical tools. The law has a role to play, but in many ways we fetishize the constitution. Dr. Villagas, you know, I think just to... To go back slightly in, into our history, we, 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 we've touched, you know, quite, quite, quite a few times on the transition of 1994. I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, uh, no one is born hating another person because of the color of their skin. 
Uh, and then he says, people, mu- people must learn to hate, and if they can learn to hate, they can be taught mm. to love. Mm. Now, can, 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 what, what do we do with people who violate, violate the rights of others or who harbor racist thoughts or, or racist supremacist thoughts, etc.? and some of them who act them out, like uh, the, instant, the incidents that we've just been talking about uh, in Stellenbosch, among, among other places? Do we do we teach people or do we punish people? What should we be doing exactly? Oh my goodness, you're reminding me of Mamdani when he, you know he asked this question to say, is it, do we do impunity or do we do we give amnesty? It's, these are hard questions, right? Um, I think in terms of where we are as a country, it's a question of whether. Are we able to heal ourselves from these divides? Are we able to forgive, which is what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was meant to be about? I, I, I think it's quite complicated, right? We need a conversation as a nation because racism is embedded in the psyche of our nation and very little has been done to undo it. Uh, in my view, I think we need national healing um, spaces where we have honest conversations about the question of race. Let us look back, for example, when when we had the leadership that has taken us to, uh, to, de- to democracy when it was in exile. Some people left here in the country and comrades who were, you know, mobilizing, you know, for the liberation of South Africa stayed in the country. And I think the pain of racism um, I would I would argue was perhaps different for those who stayed in the country, you know, and had to duck the bombs and, and so on whilst uh, our leadership was, was in exile. So that conversation has not happened. When we transitioned and we came back into the country, we quickly jumped into negotiations. We quickly jumped into elections. And even after elections, there was no national conversation that gets deeper into the pain of what actually it felt like to be discriminated against on the grounds of one's skin. Is it even possible to... To, to forgive as the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was mandated to do, whose voices were in the TRC, people who were left here in the country who are still digging for bodies of loved ones who, who went missing because of the crimes of apartheid are still aching, right? So we need that conversation that unravels the pain. We need to touch the wound of the nation. We are a wounded nation, we are a wounded society, and, and healing comes through digging pain and honest pain and honest revelation. So we need to speak about this. But what, what the Sunset Clause did was to close that conversation off, was to say, this is not even possible for open up. You know, the negotiations uh, that Nelson Mandela was part of and Abu, Abu, Honorable President Cyril Ramaphosa, who said that we are not even going to have a conversation. Nonviolence must, uh, you know, the umkondoesis must stop the armed struggle. Uh, nonviolence must be now the norm without even questioning why we are even seen as a violent nation. Is it actually violence or is it an anti-racist struggle? Like Isibas is, is speaking. So language is important. We need to go back to the conversation of anti-racism, not non-racialism, which was a settlement at Kodesa. And I think until we get to the bottom of that wound, to the woundedness of, of ourselves and confront this with love, of course, with, with intention that says we need to heal. But how do you heal? How do you forgive somebody who is not even indicating that they're willing to even say, I am truly sorry for what I have done, which is what actually whiteness is saying to us today. They can even pee 
you know, a pee on, 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 on blackness and even repeat the same way to say this is what white boys do simply because there is no intention at heart that says I can see truly through generations of the skin that I carry that hurt and pain has been caused in this land and we need to then heal ourselves. So that is for me something that is at the core of this conversation, at the core of this work that we really and truly, everyone, all of us need to acknowledge that pain need to allow for that pain to, 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 to express itself in different ways and in different forms. It has been expressing itself through, through, through protest. Uh, you know, it has been expressing itself through, through, through perhaps what other people call violence and so on. But there, there are other means and ways in which we need to have a confrontational dialogue. And I'm using the word confrontation here selectively, not to say we must fight against each other. But I think we need to touch each other's wounds. Talk to families whose bodies are still missing. Talk to families whose loved ones and, and, and breadwinners are still missing and will never be found. No one talks about that. And, and yet we are saying we are a non-racial South Africa. How do I then rise up and say, yes, I'm willing to forgive a, a whiteness? I'm, like Umyandana is saying, he is willing to forgive the student that is urinated in his room, right? It may be interesting to dig deeper into what led him to immediately and quickly say, Yes, I will forgive. How does forgiveness look like? How does anti-racist forgiveness look like? So for me, that is the conversation that I think the post-apartheid, if there is post-apartheid at all, the post-apartheid leadership, the democratic dispensation has robbed us of. President, former President Robert Mugabe, the late, actually puts it this way, that South Africa needs another revolution. And that revolution, some of us from feminist spaces, we are calling it a revolution of love and healing, right? But that kind of love and healing says, I love you so much to look at you in the eye and tell you the truth that you have messed me up. You have messed me up and there is no way mm. that I can just simply be expected to forgive you without touching my wound and touching my pain. And that pain is bringing back the land. That pain is saying, bring back the resources. That pain is saying, respect the spaces that I walk into as a black body in this country, you know, in, in many, many ways. So, so that's the conversation we shy away from, eh, Mike. And we need to go into that conversation with love and healing with intention that says, you know what, if you're talking yes. pain, you are going to touch the wound and you're all going to hurt, but let us allow ourselves to go there because we can't talk democracy. We can't just sugarcoat it in democracy and say democracy is, is, is a process of healing all of us without going there. You know, that's my perspective. Yes. Hey, hey, Isabel, as we're talking about wounds that need to be healed here, presumably these are black wounds or the wounds of people who are at the receiving end of whiteness. Now, am, am I wrong? Because it, it seems to me that actually in in many of these incidents that we're talking about, whether it's at Stellenbosch or wherever, it's, it would seem to me that it is it is white people who seem to be very angry about something and aggrieved about something, whether whether it's about the, the old flag, the apartheid flag, or some other thing. Um, what, what, what would you say white people are aggrieved about? Because they should be the ones who are magnanimous. <laughs> I think that's a critically important and delicious and difficult and lit question. I think, firstly, that a lot of white people are grieving for loss of power, or the fear of losing power because they still have a lot of power. What they should be doing is what you are alluding to, Mike, which is to look forward to the kind of work that Fikile is sketching 
which is not just to restore black humanity and to recover black humanity from centuries of having had our collective and individual dignity as black peoples trampled on, but also to recover white humanity. Because white superiority, although it leaves bloodied, wounded black bodies in its wake, it also injures the perpetrator who walks around with a superhuman sense of themselves and therefore they are deluded and in a sense also have their own humanity undermined hence the black consciousness slogan that not only should black people learn to accept that we are also human but white South Africans need to be taught and learn how to internalize the fact that they are only human. So when you get anger from white South Africans over the old South African flag, or when you get white South Africans who are supposedly progressive liberal English centrists celebrating a cricketer getting off on a racism charge because a black witness is too fatigued to go ahead with witnessing, in those moments, we see white South Africans clinging on to the historical vestiges of privilege and being licensed to do what you want just on account of having a white skin. So white anger and a white sense of being marginalized in the new South Africa, so-called, is utterly ludicrous. It is all just nostalgia for a time when they had a disproportionate amount of economic, social and political wealth and power. And it tells us how much work we have to do that so many white people listening to this podcast will have the audacity of thinking that they are victims in 2022. Dr. Villagas, if I'm a, a, a young person, a young black person living in Kailicha or even, even, even being at Stellenbosch and, and somebody comes in and pees on my belongings, etc. And I'm told that, look, uh, even your, your parents and your parents' parents and your parents' parents' parents suffered this and even worse. And I, I look around and I see nothing has changed. Doesn't the question arise, how long are we going to, how, how much time do we have to keep teaching and understanding and explaining? It, it, of course it does. And I mean, it's angering, right? Um, it's absolutely angering to, to, to have to carry that uh, generational responsibility of having to constantly be the ones that teach the perpetrator. And, and, and it's absolutely angering. And I, I, I like the angle that Eusebius is taking really to say whiteness is something that has, um, has, has injured not only what is perceived as blackness in society, but it has also injured the perpetrators of whiteness by falsely creating this deep sense of, 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 of permanent privilege. Um, that I think the struggle now is about trying to preserve, which is why we have Orania, right, in South Africa. Why is it that South Africa has Orania in the Northern Cape? When you speak to the people of Orania, they clearly state to you, to, to, to everyone openly to say, we want to be separated from black people. We want to live and create an African culture, white African culture of our own. 
And you would remember, I mean, when I listened to that, I actually was reminded of a conversation with Ngosu Ushaga when Ushaga was talking to the negotiators, um, you know, of, of the imperialists who arrived here negotiating land with Ngosu Ushaga and Ushaga asked them a question, uh, how then are you going to live with, with our children? You know, because you are going to taste this beautiful land, you are going to like it and when, and you are going to steal it. Um, because they were negotiating to say they would love to live here, but they need to be far away from blackness. In other words, in the manner that we see how these farms have actually, uh, you know, grown themselves in South Africa, things like Orania. So that is angering uh, that you'll still find then a young person in 2022 in Kailija who are dealing with the same questions of ancestors and ancestresses, you know, questions that have been dealt with over time and we still carry that burden of responsibility of teaching anti-racism, of teaching healing, of teaching love and teaching Ubuntu and humanity. So Really, whiteness is a construct that has injured everyone that is involved, which is why this conversation needs all of us. First of all, we need to actually have it in a manner that shows exactly what you see, is pointing at, to say this injury is not just to blackness, but this injury is also to whiteness, which is why we have to unlearn. It has to be unlearned, this behavior of, of white privilege, white supremacy. It is a construct that does not exist. It is false. And it is an act of violence. So it needs to be undone. And to a young person then in Kailicha, a young person in, 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 in Soweto, Ekukuletu, and so on, I would say I do not think that it is just our responsibility as survivors of racism to teach perpetrators how to love, how to care, how to, to be anti-racist. I think that it is the struggle and the responsibility of everyone, including whiteness, to take charge of unlearning that white privilege, unlearning that white supremacy as an act of oppression and, and, and then reconciling and recovering themselves also into a place of uh, humanity. Mm -hmm. As always, time the enemy, uh, Isabel Makaiza and uh, Dr. Figida Villagas. I think we're going to have to wrap it up here on the Sunday Times Politics Weekly. And I'd like to thank you very much uh, for joining us. Uh, our guests, uh, Andrew Gaum, a commissioner at the Human Rights Commission, Eusebius Mekaiser, social analyst, broadcaster, and author of the book, Run, Racist, Run, as well, of course, as Dr. Figile Villagazi, who teaches public policy and political science at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. We appreciate your time. I'm Mike Siluma. Until next time, stay safe, stay blessed. <laughs>